Welcome to Fate's Wide Wheel, a Quantum Leap podcast with Sam and Dennis. We are coming to you from our top secret headquarters at Project Quantum Leap, but you can find us online at fwwquantumleappod.com or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Fate's Wide Wheel. And please do us a favor by hitting the subscribe button on iTunes. All right. Hello, everybody. Hello. Welcome to Fate's Wide Wheel, Quantum Leap podcast with Sam and Dennis. This week we'll be discussing Ghost Ship. <laughs> I don't know why I did that. That is the most directed to the point that we've ever gotten. Uh, Jesus, yeah. Let's yeah. Let's just jump right in. Why not? Let's just jump right into it. This will be a, right. this, this will be a Fate's Wide Wheel first. Actually, getting into the episode and less than a minute in, I'm going to shut just, up so we can actually get into it. Let's dive in. Ghost so here ship. we go. Ghost ship. Ghost ship. August thirteenth, nineteen fifty six. That's right. And we are in um, some some interesting territory here because we have a returning director and a returning writer. However, it is their second. Uh, episode each, uh, and these are the uh, only, or their last appearances, rather, uh, on the show. Our director is Anita W. Addison. Uh, she had directed Dreams before this. Um, as we noted on that episode, uh, she was one of the very first African-American female TV executives. Um, she unfortunately passed away in 2004 at the age of 51, uh, and the Academy Award-winning film Crash is dedicated to her memory. Ah, okay. um, so she worked on a lot of, of other television projects as well well and uh, of course was you know an executive for a time um th- the episode was written by paris qualls and don belisario uh, now paris qualls was uh, also an african-american writer um he had previously written the episode unchained um he also wrote the screen adaptation of Raisin in the Sun, which again is something that I'm pretty sure we mentioned last time. Uh, he also wrote a TV film uh, called The Rosa Parks Story um, and a number of other uh, television and, uh, and film uh, writing assignments, if you will. Uh, the air date for this episode is March 4th, 1992, and our leap date, as Dennis mentioned, was August 13th, 1956. Uh, Sam has leapt into Francis Edward Eddy bracket, and our location is somewhere in the Bermuda Triangle. The Bermuda Triangle. Let's do the TV Guide description. Sam tries to change fate over the Bermuda Triangle as the co-pilot of an airplane carrying a woman with a potentially fatal condition. That is one of the more straightforward TV Guide descriptions. Right. No puns whatsoever. Just straight to the point, kind of like... This episode so far, yeah, <laughs> pretty so far. That's sort of a blunt kind blunt, of you know. Yeah. Uh, other in other countries, this episode in Germany, it was known as the Death Trap. <laughs> in France, it was known as Panic on Board. Uh, in Italy, it was known as Phantasmi or Ghosts. All right, but in America, it was known as Ghost Ship. Yeah, what do we think of that title? Let's just talk about the title right off right off the bat here. You know, it's one of those things. The the the, the oddness of the title did not even occur to me until about three hours ago. Yeah, and then I was like, wait, wait, wait. The the, the it, it kind of telegraphs the ending, but right, yeah. It, which it, which up until that point is a nice little twist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but uh, I don't know. Here are my initial thoughts on this episode. Um, you know the meme that goes around the internet that says that when I was a kid, I thought quicksand was going to be a much bigger part of my life. <laughs> and we've talked about on the show how uh, when I was a kid, I thought that fist fights and gunfights were going to be a much bigger part of my life totally. because I watched so many westerns. Uh, when I first saw this episode, 
as a kid, I thought having to avoid the Bermuda Triangle was right. going to be a much bigger part of my life. Because uh, yeah. I, I can't remember if we talked about this on mic or off my, off my last episode. Um, I, I feel like at the time this episode aired in the early 90s, there was kind of this pop culture zeitgeist around the Bermuda Triangle. Everybody yeah. was suddenly fascinated with it. Um, I remember like the, the, the Time Life series, uh, Mysteries of the Unknown. Right, right. And I, I, you know, this was a feature in one of those books. Uh, I felt like, yeah, the Bermuda Triangle was a big deal. People talked about it a lot more Yeah, back then. I, it was like this mysterious thing. Right. No, I completely agree. And I, you know, uh, we talked about this uh, earlier in the week. Um, we are naturally recording a little later than we had anticipated. And uh, we had some discussions earlier in the week about what the content of this episode would be, because I think while we certainly have some things to talk about in the context of the episode itself, the episode is, is fairly straightforward. It's, I, I mean, compared to other episodes, it's a little thin. Um, I don't by any means say that in a negative way. It's yeah. just, I think it just is what it is. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a good episode. It's There's, good. There, there are no social issues to unpack. Right. You know, <laughs> Right. Uh, there's not a, yeah, there's there, there's not a whole lot to pick apart about the episode. I was thinking about this earlier. Uh, um, this put me in mind of another TV show that revolves around uh, a plane crashing for mysterious reasons. And that's a little <laughs> TV show called Lost. Yeah. Here's something to make you feel old, Sam. Uh-oh. This episode aired in 1992. Yes. Lost would debut 12 years later oh. in 2004. Oh, man. We are now... So we're 15 years out from when Lost debuted. So I, just just let that sink in. It's That is weird to me. It's funny because Lost has been on my mind a bit lately, and I actually recently was, um, you know, reading about, like, when the last season aired. And thinking about the amount of time that has passed, you know, between that and now, and it and it is kind of mind boggling because it's. I mean, we're we're coming up close to a decade since the show has been off the we're air. Off the air, yeah. Which is which is uh, just kind of crazy to me. But it's just a little weird, yeah. Let's jump into uh, where uh, we've been doing this last couple of episodes. Where is Al or where is Sam in time here in relation to? Uh, in relation to everything else. Uh, let me pull this back up here. I had it pulled up earlier. So I think what? he is just a he's... week after how the test was won. Yeah, and he's a little bit before Genesis. That's it, yeah. Another another pilot episode. Right. <laughs> so yeah, he's, he's right in the sweet spot where a lot of our episodes take place. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, I was thinking about that earlier because uh, just the the fact that this episode actually directly references the pilot, um, which is something that you know we don't all, we don't often see um, references to other episodes, um, direct references rather to other episodes. Uh, you know they're peppered in here and there, but this one is a rather strong you know reference specifically to the episode to breaking Mach 3 to you know what happens in the plane afterwards all this sort of stuff and I, and I thought that that was really really interesting um, 
the other thing that the episode does on a couple of occasions, when you mentioned Al earlier, I know and I know you meant Sam, but when you mentioned Al, it just made me think that there are a couple of instances of really interesting things done with Al as a hologram in the episode. Oh, yeah. That unfortunately we didn't see a whole lot of, and and it's really really cool. You know, when Al makes his entrance, he's actually outside the plane. Mm-hmm. You know, um, from Sam's perspective, just floating outside the plane, taking in the plane. He's a fan of the plane, which we'll talk about in a minute. Walks in, then you know, to the plane and 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 has the conversation with Sam. He's on the outside in a later scene as well. There's the moment where uh, Cooper, the other pilot. Like sits down in Al, you know. So mm-hmm. there are a couple of really nice moments um, that, hey, let's be honest, don't hold up that well as far as special effects go. Oh, yeah. But there are still cool moments that we did not, unfortunately, get a lot of throughout the run of the series. Excellent. Yes, and along that line, the the moment that always jumped out at me as a kid that was the eeriest moment of this episode to me is when... Al disappears as a hologram, and he's going on the rant like, yeah. whole planes have disappeared, whole ships have disappeared. And Sam says, you're disappearing, and Al says, I'm not disappearing, but you are. I always found that to be a really cool, eerie moment. I took that, you know, it's so funny because I that was a line that I wrote down in my notes as well. Um, and I completely agree with you. I think the other thing that it does, that again, this episode, oddly enough, has these wonderful little reminders peppered throughout, uh, is it reminds us that Sam is the hologram from Al's perspective. Mm-hmm. And I think exactly. that that's something that we don't, you know, we don't get enough of. Um we know it. Like, I think anyone who watches the show and has probably watched the show, you know, somewhat consistently up until this episode, whether we're talking, you know, 27 years ago or we're talking somebody watching it today, uh, I think we're all conscious of that. Like, it is something that we, we know, but to have it kind of explicitly pointed out um, is, is, is kind of cool because it's not something that gets hit upon a lot. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, let's let's talk about the cast of this episode. It's a small let's cast. We got it a nice is. little. This is a nice little bottle episode. We're all uh, we are well contained within one set and stock footage. Yeah, lots it's, of lots of stock. I think we see some similar skies from the opening moments of the pilot episode. Mm-hmm. I think they reuse some of that footage. Um, and Matt Dale, he points out in his book, they uh, reuse a lot of footage from a previous Don Belisario series, Tale, yeah. Tales of the Golden Monkey. Um, so getting that, some mileage out of that. That's uh, right, yeah, because the aircraft that was used was actually the same aircraft that Jake Cutter in Tales of the Gold Monkey uh, used, um, which, yeah, again, is another, another Belisario uh, hey, production. It's, 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 it is the Aaron Sorkin school of, of screenwriting and reuse. If nobody watched your first, nobody watched the other series, reuse that again. Right, yeah. I'm, of course, referencing uh, Sports Night rolling into West Wing, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so we got, we, got, we got Scott, we got Dean, and we got Scott mm-hmm. Hogsby. Yes, who plays um, the uh, other pilot. Um, Captain Cooper. Captain Cooper, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, fairly lengthy career, um, starting back in 1985, um, and uh, lots of uh, television and film. Um, most recently, it looks like we've got um, an appearance in um, a movie called Shooting the Warwicks. He played a character called Mr. Stone Cipher. Oh. Um, 
He uh, uh, also recently was seen in the television series Aquarius, which was that David Duchovny show that was sort of a heightened, fictionalized version of the lead-up to the Manson murders, um, which are, are now over 50 years old, um, as of a couple weeks ago. Um, and, uh, yeah, some guest appearances here and there on, on stuff like CSI and The Mentalist, um, more recently, uh, did a stint on The Young and the Restless, uh, Law and Order, Six Feet Under, uh, was also in an episode of JAG, so another Belisario connection sure. there. I think that's a rite of passage, it's, uh... <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 and then, uh, and then we, playing his his wife Wendy, mm-hmm. you have Kimberly Foster. Kim Foster, what else has she been in? Uh, well, the interesting thing about her is that she did have um, a, a pretty good career beginning in 1983, um, doing mostly television. Um, had uh, a spot on The Fall Guy, Knight Rider, The A Team. Um, did uh, a few episodes of The Best Times. Uh, her character name uh, in the best times really stands out. It's Stanford Babe. So there right. we go. Fair enough. She also went on to play Fantasy Girl in the pilot of 30-something. Uh, <laughs> she did 50 episodes of Dallas as Michelle Stevens. The character before uh, she was named, actually, though, was known as Girl in Bed with Nicholas. All right. So there you have that. Uh, and then she would go on to do a stint in All My Children, which is her last credit on IMDb uh, in 1995. Um, now, I'm not saying that one has necessarily anything to do with the other, but that is, however, um, around the time that she got married and started a family. So I don't know uh, if she so maybe decided that was... to stop pursuing acting at that point or if maybe she you know, was working... Uh, um, you know, in, in other capacities in the entertainment industry, who who knows? But that's you know that's what IMDb tells us about. Yes, yeah. And, and to interject, if you are newer to this podcast and listening, uh, Sam and I, we are both actors, former actors. We're both on pause from acting right now. Um, if it ever sounds like we are making fun of actors and their short career or what their IMDb credits are, the short the short list, the lengthy list or whatever, uh, we are not mocking them in any no. cruel way. And we apologize if it ever comes across that way. Um, to me, I feel like anybody trying to make it as an actor, especially trying to make it in Hollywood, it's like playing the lottery. It doesn't matter how talented you are or how skilled you are. A lot of it comes down to luck. Um, so if, if, we, if we're ever making fun of like an actor dropping off the face of the earth, we do not mean it that way. But speaking of actors dropping off the face of the earth, let's talk about <laughs> Kurt Deutsch. Let's talk about Kurt Deutsch. <laughs> um, he uh, plays uh, um, uh, Grant Cutter, the mm-hmm. young newlywed, um, and he started his career in 1990 um, with a bit part uh, right before... Uh, um, coming on to Quantum Leap. Um, he would do mostly television um, throughout his career, uh, two-parter of Matlock. Um, he was in nine episodes of Models, Inc. Um, he also uh, would go on to do um, Law & Order, Sex in the City. Um, he had an uncredited role recently in the last five years, um, which is a film... Um, uh, based on a, a stage musical, actually, uh, in this uh, particular instance, starred Anna Kendrick and Jeremy Jordan. So, um, basically, about uh, a relationship that is dissolving, and so you you just see sort of the you know the the end 
um, of the relationship, and then it kind of goes back uh, to tell you towards the beginning of the relationship. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, he yeah he had an uncredited uh, role as the director um, in in that film, um, but not a lot between the year two thousand and two thousand fourteen uh, as an actor. It looks like he did some producing uh, as well, but not not really sure you know what he's been up to outside of that. Um, but clearly he's still, you know, involved in some capacity over the past five years or so. Um, and then of course playing his wife, uh, the one who has clearly acquitted themselves the, the, uh, the best, if you will, out of this guest cast is Carla Gugino. Oh yeah. Um, who is, is just a fantastic, uh, actor. Um, has, has pretty much, I mean, she's one of those people that seems to have, you know, three or four things coming out every year, uh, sometimes more than that. Film, television, you know, you name it. Her her uh, credit list is pretty, uh, pretty lengthy. Um, she started her career playing Jane in Who's the Boss, the episode uh, entitled Prom Night 2, um, which you know, sounds like it could have been a slasher flick, but no, in this case, it was not. Uh, uh, actually, there was a slasher flick called Prom Night 2, but that that's for another discussion at a later time. But yes, <laughs> keep going, yes. Um, she also was in uh, Good Morning, Miss Bliss, which was the title of a little show called Saved by the Bell before it became Saved by the Bell when it was intended to focus on Haley Mills' character, who was the teacher, before it instead started to focus focus on the students. Uh, um, Speaking of, to to interject in there, have you ever read the cracked article uh, with the, with the, the conspiracy theory of the relationship between uh, good morning, miss bliss and saved by the bell? No. Uh, In very short, go, you Google this article. Um, uh, Anybody listening, Google this article. Uh, You can find it. It, It's a fascinating read if you are ever a fan of Saved by the Bell. But basically the short end of it is, and the article goes in length in in, in explaining why this conspiracy theory works, is that Good Morning Miss Bliss is real life. (laughs) Saved by the Bell was uh, Good Morning Miss Bliss's Zach's version of, it was like his fever dream, his fantasy life that he escaped into to get over being a nerdy kid that nobody liked. Wow. Saved by the Bell was his fantasy life. Go wow. Google that what? article and go check it out. It was, I think it was, it was fascinating about that. Is yeah. that I, I, unfortunately, I feel like I know too much about this. But yeah, they, they, they take place in, in, in different cities, basically. I mean, it's never mentioned. The characters are still all the same. It's, you know, but it's, yeah, the, like, one's, like, supposed to actually be East Coast. The other is, is West one's Coast. One's in Indiana. Yeah, yeah that's Miss what Bliss it is. Miss Bliss is in right. Indiana, yeah. Yeah, 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 Indiana. And then, of course, all of a sudden, then they're out in, in Bayside in California. Yeah. Et cetera, whatever. Anyway, yeah. um, she, uh, she would also go on to um, do, you know, stints in lots of different television shows, guest spots uh, in lots of shows. Uh, I, I think that uh, some people might actually remember her from her guest spot in The Wonder Years um, when she was kind of involved in, like, a love triangle. Um, that would be shortly before uh, this episode of Quantum Leap. Uh, she would go on to do um, a lot more television. Uh, she was in the music video for Bon Jovi's Always. Um, she was in Spin City, uh, which I think was really when she started to kind of pick up most of, of, of her steam. You know, after that, um, she would do uh, a stint on Chicago Hope, which is Dennis and I have uh, spoken about before, is the finer iteration of Chicago-based uh, hospital television <laughs> program, which yeah. unfortunately did not last very long. Um, she was in the critically acclaimed and criminally underrated 
um, television program Karen Sisko, which was based on the Elmore Leonard novel Out of Sight. Um, she, no disrespect uh, to Jennifer Lopez, maybe a little bit, maybe a little shade. I don't know, but she was the far better iteration of that character. Um, it was it was an incredible TV show, honestly. It aired in 2003 and, and, and unfortunately only lasted 10 episodes. Um, but she was the lead and she was just out of this world. Um, she would have a stint on Entourage. Uh, she had uh, quite a memorable stint on uh, a show that I am quite partial to for reasons unknown to even myself, uh, Californication. Um, she played uh, Hank Moody's uh, lawyer. Uh, she did an episode of Justified. Um, you know, just again, tons of television um, and film. She was in Sin City. Um, she also most recently uh, was in the television show Jet, uh, playing the title character. Um, and she will be in the sequel. How do you make a sequel to this? I don't know. Uh, she was in the the blockbuster film San Andreas with The Rock, uh, and there is a sequel on the horizon uh, that she will uh, also be co-starring in. I, I want to jump back and say the last thing I saw her in was in 2018's The Haunting of Hill House. Mm. And if you have all not seen this show, it's Halloween. It's the perfect season for it. It's only yeah. 10 episodes. If you have not seen this episode, if you have not seen this Netflix series, stop what you're doing. Right now, literally, pause <laughs> this podcast, go binge all 10 episodes of this series, go watch it, and then come back and pick up here. Um, <laughs> Betsy and I, we were watching it this time last year, actually, um, and we binged through the 10 episodes really quickly. It's a standalone story. Uh, they've already said if there's a second season, it's going to focus on a completely different story. Uh, so it's 10 episodes, standalone story. It is excellent, excellent Halloween viewing. For yeah, Carla I, you know, and I, for everybody else involved, go check out that show. Two other things I should mention uh, uh, real quick that, that uh, she was also fantastic in um, was uh, Watchmen, um, the film Watchmen, oh, yeah, based yeah. on the, the comic book um, series uh, from the 80s. And then, uh, of course, she was also in uh, another um, film that's on Netflix, uh, that is also rather perfect for the Halloween season, the adaptation of Stephen King's Gerald's Game, which I have not actually seen yet, but I saw the extended trailer, and the extended trailer freaked me out in all the right ways, and she looked amazing in it. Um, and part of the premise is, is that basically she and her uh, husband go to this cabin. Uh, she gets tied up when they are in bed together, and then he dies of a heart attack, and she's tied up and she can't get out of the bed. Um, and uh, it's it's it kind of just goes from there. But uh, it, it looked incredible, and I've heard really wonderful things about it, and part that she's amazing because she spends most of the film utterly alone, like no other characters interacting with her at all. Um, which is, which is quite a feat. So, um, major props to her. She's, she's awesome. And, uh, we get to see her, uh, as a very, very young, fresh faced actor in this particular episode of quantum leap. Excellent. And then finally, lastly, we have, uh, the mirror image, uh, played by Mark McPherson, and he's one of the rare mirror image characters who actually has uh, an IMDb credit page that goes beyond a few credits. That's right. Uh, yeah. Looking at one of his more recent photos, he looks really familiar, but I think he's just got one of those faces that he looks super familiar. Yeah. I don't think I've actually seen him in anything else. 
Most no. recently, he was in a TV series called Get Spy. Yeah. <laughs> um, which I assume had to, has to be a kid's show uh, because every episode ends with an exclamation point. Holy guacamole, exclamation point. Girl fight, exclamation point. Ahoy, matey, exclamation point. Um, yeah, yeah, it makes me wonder where it airs because it's, it, 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 its tagline is espionage on a budget. Um, oh, my God. Which, which makes me think that it might be kind of a bit of a takeoff on, on Get Smart. I don't know. Oh, sure. Uh, but, anyway. yeah, so, so that's our cast of characters. And so, uh, yeah, what are some of the highlights? We kind of talked about some of the spooky highlights. Um, should we talk about a little bit about the triangle itself? Yes, that was something, yeah, that was something that I intended to kind of mention a little bit more before we got, you know, sidetracked as we were wont to do. But, yeah, when you and I were talking about how we wanted to talk about this episode in particular, um, you know, we mentioned talking a bit about the Bermuda Triangle, and that was your idea. So you said you were going to do some research. So I'm putting you on the spot, Dennis. What have you got for us? Well, the Bermuda Triangle (laughs) is loosely defined uh, as between the island of Bermuda, Puerto Rico, and Florida, uh, I do think most recently, I don't know if Hurricane Dorian passed directly through her, but passed pretty close through her. I'm not going to, I don't know, I've been following the news very closely. I'm not going to make any guesses. I'm not going to make any Sharpie <laughs> marks on a map. I don't know. Um, but yeah, it has a. a all of these disappearances that that have been on the record, and it, it kind of makes me wonder if it's one of those things that no more things have really disappeared in this area than anything else. It's just something that gets kind of like get picked up in the pop culture zeitgeist. Yeah. Um, the the USS Cyclops did actually disappear in the Bermuda Triangle in 1918. Uh, right. That is not something that is made up in the twist at the end of the episode. Um, and there are different theories that there could be some electromagnetic things going on in there. Uh, I read a theory that it, it could be something to do with uh, there's an overabundance of methane gas coming off the ocean floor in that area, which mm. can cause uh, which can cause disruptions in both planes and ships, and that could explain some of the disappearances that have happened over the years. Yeah. Um. But yeah, that's that's what I got. So it's you know it's interesting too mentioning the Cyclops. Um, I, I think because it, it does end up being such a big part of this episode, particularly at the end, uh, that it's worth talking a little bit about that ship. Um, and the fascinating thing to me is that it, one, it was huge. Um, I, I mean, the thing was uh, the size of uh, nearly two football fields long, um, and it had three sister ships. And one of its sister ships, the USS Jupiter, was actually converted into an aircraft carrier. Um, and it was the uh, first, um, it called the USS Langley when it was recommissioned. It was the first American aircraft carrier and um, vital in developing United States naval aviation capabilities. Uh, she ended up being um, uh, attacked by Japanese aircraft and hit by five bombs. Uh, in 1942, early 1942, uh, and after the surviving crew was rescued, um, the, the ship was scuttled um, by torpedoes fired by uh, escorting ships. Um, 
that obviously is a fascinating story in and of itself. The interesting thing, which I, I, I think kind of just spinning off of the paranormal aspect of this all, is that it, the two other sister ships, the USS Proteus and the USS Nereus, both disappeared without a trace. Um, one in the Caribbean Sea sometime uh, after November 25th, 1941. That was the Proteus. And the Nereus uh, disappeared without a trace um, uh, on December 10th, 1941, uh, after leaving the Virgin Islands. Uh, now, it's worth noting, which is another interesting tie-in uh, to this episode, that at that particular time, obviously, uh, there were German U-boats operating in those areas. Um, so it's entirely possible that both of those ships were, you know, sunk by U-boats. Um, there are, you know, numerous stories. And, and I remember when I visited the Outer Banks with family a few years back, um, that there are, I mean, there's actually a U-boat, um, not too far off the Carolina coast. Um, so thinking sometimes about how close these U-boats actually got, uh, there's, you know, there's a story that could just be apocryphal about a U-boat that actually went up the Hudson River. Um, so, you know, you know, thinking, uh, nearly 80 years ago that, uh, that the Germans with, with bad intentions were able to get that close to us. Um, and, and, and in this case, you know, could very well have been responsible for these disappearances. That said, we don't know. Um, so much like the Cyclops, it's, it's kind of interesting. The other thing that was fascinating to me about the, the Cyclops is that after investigations by the Office of Naval Intelligence, it turns out that the captain of the Cyclops was actually, um, a, a, a German, uh, soldier who had basically jumped ship in San Francisco and, um, changed his name and ended up becoming captain of the ship. Now, I, I, I mean, these are two different time periods we're talking about. Obviously, the, the Cyclops was lost in 1918, uh, whereas these other ships would have been lost kind of at the advent of World War II. Uh, but it is kind of fascinating to see that, uh, I don't know, it's, it's really, really interesting, some of these coincidences that, that kind of um, have occurred beyond the, the, the Bermuda Triangle aspect, which, of course, in and of itself is a little eerie and a little spooky. Yeah. So the upshot of this is, is you did better research than I did. Well, yeah, but not on the triangle. Yeah. I mean, what I did do, what I did do, sure. however, is I remembered an episode uh, of The X-Files, which um, honestly is probably one of the more remarkable episodes of the entire series, which is saying something because the show did a wonderful job, I think, at you know, kind of stretching outside the, the, the comfort zone um, of, of you know, weekly network television. And there is an episode indeed called Triangle. It's the third episode of the sixth season uh, and aired November 22nd, 1998. The, one of the things that is, is sort of a standout and remarkable aspect of this episode, other than of course that it took place in the Bermuda Triangle, is that it was shot in real time. Um, the, the idea that Chris Carter had um, for the episode was that it would be shot in four 11-minute takes. Um, now, that didn't exactly happen, much like Alfred Hitchcock's Rope, sure. um, which is another famous you know, single-take mm -hmm. uh, uh, example, isn't actually a single take. Uh, Hitchcock and, and, his, and his cinematographers devised methods in which they could hide cuts. 
Um, so for instance, there are times when, you know, the camera will pan past like a doorway or something like that. And as it does that, you know, there's that moment where things are out of frame. And so it's easy to kind of hide a cut there and that sort of thing. And Triangle, the X-Files episode did the same thing. That said, it still takes place in, in real time and, and has the appearance of being these four 11 minute single cuts. The other thing that's remarkable about it is that at the beginning of the episode, in, in a very disorienting fashion for the viewers, uh, Mulder wakes up and it's 1939, and he is on a ship which has uh, uh, which was lost uh, at the in the Bermuda Triangle, oh. um, and he's mistaken for a Nazi spy, and you know there's all sorts of uh, interesting stuff uh, that that happens uh, throughout the course of the episode without spoiling anything else. It was also shot um, almost entirely on the Queen Mary, uh, which was standing in for the Queen Anne, which was a ship that, um, you know, in, in this instance was also lost yeah. in the Bermuda Triangle. So uh, I thought that that was worth throwing in there just as another piece of television. History. Uh, yeah, to, to go a little bit on more of a tangent, it's interesting, uh, the, the very first episode of Time Tunnel, which Quantum Leap owes a little bit to, right. has one of the main characters materializing on the Titanic, and he is mistaken as a saboteur. Because it's obviously it's hours before the Titanic is about to hit the iceberg and sink, and he's trying to get the captain to listen to him. And because he has this advanced knowledge, he is mistaken as someone who is actually trying to sabotage the ship. I wonder how much Chris Carter intentionally borrowed that idea. Yeah, I, I don't know. That is interesting. I mean. Uh, Knowing him, he, I mean, and I think he admits to it, he borrowed a lot. <laughs> and also, I mean, in, in time, the creation time, of the X-Files. I mean, Time Tunnel was, uh, it, it was, what, 30 years old at the time, and it was a, a mostly forgotten TV series, so uh, right. there's there's nothing original under the sun, steal from everywhere, uh, right. whatever, whatever, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, talking about, you know, talking about a show like the X-Files, another show that I, that I love, you know, nearly equally that didn't last quite as long, but I thought was still a really great show that is basically the X-Files is Fringe. I thought Fringe was a fantastic television show. Sure, yeah. And really, when it comes right down to it, I mean, the show is, you know, with a few tweaks here and there, is, is basically the X-Files too, you know. Um, but back to the Bermuda Triangle, uh, Wikipedia tells me that um, there have been um, a, a total of, let's see here, recorded um, instances anyway. Uh, it looks like we've got 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, uh, 11 air incidences. Um, and then we've got 9 um, uh, C incidents and one land incident uh, for a total of 910 fatalities um, and uh, 56 survivors, actually, interestingly enough, and that was in uh, a couple of incidents in 1947. Um, Apparently, in 1492, on the night of October 11th, Christopher Columbus and the crew of the Santa Maria reported a sighting of unknown light in the Bermuda Triangle. Um, Interesting. Seems to be the earliest recorded instance of something wonky over there. Um, the most recent that I can find is in 2017. Uh, a private aircraft was at 24,000 feet when it vanished from radar and radio contact with air traffic controllers in Miami. Um, plane wreckage was found later. Uh, and so that was just a couple of years ago. Um, 
it it is fascinating to me how interested we can become in something like this it, in spite of the fact that it all ends up revolving around very like morbid things like we still I, I we start to separate the like the the human cost of this all and focus only on the you know the phenomenal aspects of it and mm-hmm. i think that that um i don't know it's just a very interesting way of compartmentalizing something that that we can't help but be interested in and drawn to um because all of these incidents you know there's a loss of life mm-hmm. and sure and, and, and it's very we are fascinated e- we, are, we are very drawn by that right take our current fascination with all things uh serial killer and true crime sure for, from netflix documentaries to uh to podcasts right yeah. I don't know yeah. where I was going with that. But yeah. But yeah. But anyway. So all, all this that serve, said. So all this serves as, as a backdrop for hilarious hijinks. That's um, right. That's and, right. And, and a little bit of hilarious reactions. <laughs> yes. We are very much, uh, yeah, we are very much in uh, superstitious, uh, scaredy cat, owl territory throughout the entire episode. Uh, Dean Stockwell playing that for much, for much comedy. Yeah. Uh, yes, he, he is. He is. Yeah, Al is definitely in uh, in comedy mode for the most part. I do think one of the things about this that, that is kind of it, it really does end up being a very good example of Al overall because we get to see the way that Dean Stockwell is able to play those comedic moments and then also never lose the like the stakes. You, you know, in particular when you know when we find out about the fact that. Um, um, oh gosh, I've lost her name now. Um, the 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 newlywed uh, Michelle. Mm-hmm. When, when we when we realize that Michelle's going to die uh, uh, if you know if she doesn't get treatment and that sort of stuff, the, the, those those stakes never get lessened in spite of the fact that there is some levity in in Dean's performance as Al here. Um, and I think that that's just kind of a wonderful example of what he was able to do um, throughout the course of the series in general. For sure. And I feel I, I, I don't know if newer, more modern TV series like it's either comedy or drama. There's no mix in between. Whereas mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of like earlier TV, especially like in the 80s, early 90s, and especially the 70s, like they somehow managed to float this thing more like, hey, we're going to have some comedy. Hey, this character's life's on the line. But hey, we're going to have some comedy. Um, yeah, it's. <sighs> Yes, I know exactly what you mean, and and I sometimes I think that maybe we've there are more subtle representations of that sometimes. For some reason, one of the things that popped into my head was was Mad Men all of a sudden, and and I know that seems like a crazy tangent, but like Roger's character offered a lot of comedic relief and yet was also in some very serious situations and a very serious character as well. Um, but I think that there's, that there seems to be a little bit more, and I don't just mean by from the actors. Um, but even when you think about the way that a scene is scored, like the music that gets used, um, these days it's not as an overt clue in, um, yeah, I've been rewatching the original series of Star Trek recently as well. Um, and since we're a Star Trek podcast, I feel like I should mention this. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> We're not. We never have been. But anyway, uh, watching the original series of Star Trek, um, you know, there, there'll be episodes where you'll have these serious moments um, and, and some scenery chewing from Shatner or whatnot. And then, of course, towards the end of the episode, after everything's going to be okay, there'll be that inevitable moment between McCoy and Spock where, you know, it's clearly a, a, a you know a comedic relief moment. And the music clues you in just as much as anything else. Sure. Yeah. It's like all of a sudden we're getting a certain kind of music. And I, and I think that maybe that's something that we don't see quite as often in television, especially in what we now consider to be an hour long drama series or whatever. Oh, sure. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Got it. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and all of this is also against the backdrop, a little flavor here of a little PTSD going in Cooper. Yeah. Which I feel a, a, a lot of that storyline and, and, and everything about him being a, a fighter pilot in the Air Force, like that is all in Belisario's wheelhouse. Right. You know, um, obviously he, he knows that from his own background. A couple of things, yeah, a couple of things, too, that I wanted to note with that. Um, it's interesting because uh, Cooper is wearing a, um, a fighting 31st patch. Um, the interesting thing about that is it's one of the oldest um, Navy uh, fighter squadrons. Uh, I think it's the second oldest. And um, the weird thing about it is that with what we hear about Cooper when he was flying, where he was flying that doesn't line up because the 31st were actually in the Pacific theater. Um, so they would not, he, he wouldn't have been flying in the Bermuda triangle in 1944 if he was actually a part of the fighting 31st. Uh Um, so I did think that that was like one of those odd things. And I don't know if it was just a case of like somebody saying like, Oh, here's, let's put this patch on him, you you, you know, or or whatever, like this will, this will denote that he was a member of of something or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I just, I wanted to know more about that. And I saw that. So I did a little research and from what I could find anyway, online, I couldn't find any evidence that they actually were, would have been anywhere near, you know, Bermuda, um, for whatever that's worth. Um, the other thing, though, that I did think was cool is that the Goose, the, the, the Grumman aircraft that, um, that we see, the G-21, it's an amphibious flying boat is how it's described. Um, and it was actually originally uh, designed to serve as a commuter aircraft for businessmen. Um, and uh, apparently it, it was the first monoplane to fly. Um, which, which is also kind of interesting. Um, the, uh, not only was it also the, the, um, let's see here. How do I say this? But not only was it the first aircraft to enter commercial airline service, it also became effective for military service as well during World War II, which is something that they touch on about how, like when Al's telling uh, Sam about, um, it would do like U-boat patrols and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And it would also, much like when we get the episode of PTSD that Cooper goes through, uh, drop bombs um, and, you know, hoping to score hits uh, on German uh, ships and, and such. Um, it was really, really kind of interesting to read a, a little bit about uh, the aircraft um, because it, it was used for a lot of different purposes, uh, including obviously the anti-submarine warfare, but also uh, transport, search and rescue, a lot of other duties. And, and it was not only an, 
assigned to the Navy, uh, but the Coast Guard would go on to use it as well. Um, and then the Royal Air Force, the Canadian Air Force, um, and the Royal Navy uh, ended up actually using it um, in, in, in England. So, uh, yeah, I thought, I just, I don't know, I was really kind of fascinated by the, the use of the plane and the fact mm-hmm. that it started off as basically being this, you know, I'm a rich guy who needs to fly out to Nantucket this weekend and I want a plane to do it in, uh, to sure. being something that, that had a very useful purpose during the war. Yeah. Um, and also kind of a good reminder that in particular towards the beginning of the war for, for the United States anyway, that it was definitely a case of like, grab whatever you can find and figure out a way to put it to use. Yeah. You know, we didn't become the amazing monolithic machine that churned out all of these wonderful, uh, you know, weapons until later into the into the war. It was it was just literally like, hey, this plane looks like it could be useful. Let's use it. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but going to the PTSD real quick, uh, and I want to hear your take on this. Uh, I, I thought it was interesting because, especially even in the '90s, I feel like we were hearing a lot, obviously, about Vietnam veterans it was still a subject that was not discussed nearly as much when it came to veterans of world war two or world war one, uh, you know, or any other war for that matter. Obviously we know that it existed. Mm-hmm. There were other names for it. You know, he's cracked, he's shell shocked, he's sure. whatever, but, uh, it was still something that I feel like it wasn't touched upon. So I did think it was interesting that, you know, we were talking about a vet from world war two, that this wasn't, you know, uh, sort of another Vietnam story, if you will. It felt kind of a little refreshing. It was, it ended up being dealt with rather handily, and, and they moved on. But overall, you know, I thought it was interesting to see. It was, yeah, it was. Um, it was a thing that I did not appreciate as much when I was a kid, because obviously mm. I didn't have the yes, the, the worldview or anything to understand it, but. Uh, yeah, while they didn't make a meal out of it or anything, uh, it, it, it served as point for the plot. And yes, uh, yeah. it makes you wonder how much is Cooper actually going to deal with this after the episode is over with and, and get yeah. some counseling or whatever. Well, I mean, you know, as, as much as you do in 1950s or whatever. Right, right. Yeah, it, it it does seem to me that it was maybe, and it's hard to, to level this as a legitimate criticism, knowing that you've got 44 minutes and, you know, all these other stories that needed to be oh, sure. wrapped yeah. up and that, and that, you know, the, the, the sort of the, that twist at the end with the Cyclops and everything. But I, I do kind of almost wish there could have been a little bit more instead of just like, Cooper tells Sam about the Cyclops and then Sam leaps out. Sure. It, I mean, you know, was, yes, it was the classic uh, portrait for Trojan twist. Um, have we had a supernatural twist at the end of an episode since then? We're going to get a lot more coming up. You know, I think it's just worth, in, in the interest of full disclosure, it's worth noting that much like the B-Man, all of a sudden Ghost Ship has become, like, I feel like we're in the Bermuda Triangle. Yes, we have we have had so many technical glitches during this episode. If you hear any, like, weird jumps or anything, yeah, uh, yeah that's why. Technical glitch- glitches, uh, I'm recording in the dining room, which is right outside our son's bedroom, and I accidentally woke him up earlier, so I, we had to pause. Uh, we had to pause for a couple of minutes and uh, for me to jump in there and put him back to bed and... Yeah, but we're getting yeah. through it. We're soldiering through. We are. We're we we you know we're soaring at this point. We're, we're gonna make it. We're, so we're soaring. So we're so almost. We're in the home stretch. So speaking of soaring, <laughs> let's get to the part. Uh, the action sequence of this one. Like I said, this is uh, this is a very contained episode. 
uh, yeah. obviously a lower budget episode. And so the action sequence in this episode is like them uh, hurling anything that they can out of windows. Suitcases Suit- and, and cabin chairs. Yeah, yeah getting everything <laughs> they can. Uh, so they can so they can keep some elevation so that they so that they don't go so that they don't go into the sea. I would say this is probably at least for the era. This is probably one of the most exciting sequences uh, of, of of flying under dire circumstances uh, since the episode of The Incredible Hulk, where David Banner was trying to land the plane without hulking out, and yeah. so you got the you got the quote special effects. Of Bill Bigsby in bushy eyebrows and green contacts <laughs> to notate him being stuck between Banner and Hulk. <laughs> mid, yeah, mid transformation. Oh man, no, anyway. you're but you're absolutely right, and it's something that um, I feel like I should note. Uh, I, I saw on um, Al's place uh, on the message boards on Al's place. Someone was was talking about the. Um, you know, not only that scene that you're talking about where they're throwing the luggage out, but also, you know, Cooper up in, in the pilot seat and, and, and just the uh, overall kind of effect uh, of the way that it's shot and seeing this plane flying so low in the storm. And, you know, are they going to make it? Is he going to get the height that he needs? All this sort of stuff. It, it is done very well. Um, and, and the tension works. Um, the uh, it's. It, in my mind, there was a moment when I'm watching Sam stand next to the window as they're throwing the luggage out, and, and all I could think is, like, there's somebody standing on the other side just splashing him with water right now. <laughs> buckets of water. Yeah, just buckets of water on Scott Bakula. Um, and, uh, but but it, is, it is a really good scene, and it, it, like you said, it does kind of serve as the, the action scene, if you will. Uh, and, and I think it's the type of scene that ends up um, elevating the episode because it's a good episode before there. And there are some good moments. And I want to talk a little bit about Sam in doctor mode, you know, treating oh, Michelle, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, cause I really love that. But, um, but this moment, I, it does kind of feel almost like a little bit of a payoff and it, and it does feel like the culmination of some things just based on what we, you know, get from Cooper early on, hearing voices, hearing things, talking, you know, to himself, that sort of stuff, which is interesting because he gives Sam a hard time for talking to himself at one point. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I just feel like all of the stuff that, that happens with the plane itself um, really plays well. And, and, and they did a very good job of filming it, of tying in the stock footage with, the, you know, the what mm-hmm. they were actually shooting. And, um it looks great, you know. Even something as simple as as the cabin of the plane, uh, the design, sure. uh, the dressing, if you will, uh, it looks really good, uh, and so it, it works, especially for for giving you that uh, nearly claustrophobic feeling of being you know, stuck in this one yeah. place. You can't go anywhere else. Yeah, and I will. And to not give a short shrift, another thing that I remember from uh, uh, being a kid, and one of the things that I found notable and I remember from the episode. Is that when Michelle, when Michelle's pain stops, mm-hmm. and at first we think that's a good thing, and plot twist, no, that's a very bad thing. Yeah, her appendix is burst. Yeah, I remembered that from being great point. Yeah. Um. Well, right. Well, and and so since since you bring it up, I do want to talk about. I love getting to see 
Sam in doctor mode. You know, mm-hmm. we, we see it a few other times throughout the series. Um, but he's just good at it. Yeah. You know, I, I feel like if I was, you know, if, 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 if Sam Beckett were to leap back into my life at any point in time and I needed some sort of doctoring, like, I feel like I would be very well taken mm-hmm. care of. Is I feel good. He's got a good bedside manner. He know? does. He's great. <laughs> uh, and, uh, Kind of a shift, but still in doctor mode, improvising. Is this the first time since the pilot that we see him improvising something that hasn't been invented yet? I don't... Maybe, medically speaking, perhaps. I mean, yeah. 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 I, yeah. I mean, I'm talking like from a medical standpoint. I, I, yeah, you could be right. And it's, and, and it's hilarious, by the way, for a number of reasons, because... Uh, when I was doing the IMDb research and I saw Ken Deutsch's name, uh, I, in my head, I couldn't help but pronounce it douche douche because I felt like Grant Cutter himself was a little bit of a douche, he was a which bit. makes it even funnier when Wendy Cooper brings Sam a 1950s a d- era douchebag douche. yes. in order to actually uh, uh, put the IV into Michelle and who should end up holding said douchebag but, but Grant Cutter. Yes. And I was wondering <laughs> if I, I'm sure it had to have happened. And I'm sure they probably couldn't get the line cleared because of standards and practices back in the in the early days. Like, I wonder because like, it would have been perfect for Al to have made a crack about the douche holding the douche. Yeah. 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 Oh, man. It's it, yeah. It, it's interesting because I. It's it's an odd moment that when Wendy brings it to Sam and holds it up, it's like blink and you'll miss it almost. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when you see it later, it's being used in such a utilitarian manner to address the current situation that you almost wonder if they had any idea, you know, any kind of struggle getting that in. If you know what I mean, like. I, I wonder, like you are wondering, was there a line to address it, whether it was Al's or whoever's, who knows? But yeah, it, it feels like there might be something missing because it does end up being a very sort of, you'd have to know. You'd have to be kind of looking for it almost, mm-hmm. uh, or you might miss it. Yeah. I mean, it was funny, like when I was a kid, like, I didn't know what it was. Me either. Yeah. Like, I, I knew that it was something somewhat embarrassing just because of the context surrounding right. it of Al's reaction of, oh boy, which by the way is a badly overdubbed line, yeah. <laughs> a, bad, a bad overdub. But yeah, I knew it was something embarrassing. But hey, uh, it's the same thing I always say with, with, with feminine hygiene products when people act surprised. Like I, I am not embarrassed at all to grab feminine hygiene products from the store for, yeah. for, for Betsy. I, I, I've, never, I've never have been. Uh, maybe that's a product for growing up with a mom and three sisters. Um, right, right. Uh, being like, you know, it's 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 not the thing until you use it for the thing that it's intended for. Right, you know right. what I mean? You know, yeah. until you know the douchebag, it's just you know whatever materials that it is until you use it. Feminine hygiene products are only uh, you know cotton and plastic until you right. use it for what it's intended for. Just get over it. Well, yeah. I mean, the fact that there's any kind of stigma whatsoever that surrounds it is just... Yes. When you really sit down to think about it, 
it, it's absurd. It makes no sense whatsoever. Yeah. You know, it, 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 as far as I'm concerned, it's the, it's in the same realm as a razor. You know what I mean? Sure. Like, it's like, it, there should be no stigma that surrounds it whatsoever. That is um, absolutely correct. There, there we are. There's classic Sam and Dennis bringing social issues, <laughs> bringing social issues into the show. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the fact that, the fact that, you, you know, and, and I honestly have no idea. I, it's not something that I've ever researched before. But uh, I, I'm reminded of um, Boardwalk Empire, oddly enough, because there are a couple of episodes um, early on in the series that deal with one of the characters having to basically procure, um, you know, feminine hygiene products and about the difficulty which with uh, she ends up going through to get it. And it's just kind of like, why? Like, why would why would we ever be so uncomfortable that it would be difficult for someone to get that? Like, it doesn't make any sense to me, but, eh, you know, welcome the world to, in which we live. Welcome to the patriarchy. So yeah, anyway, exactly. uh, so everything turns out well. They get to the other side. Yes. They land in Bermuda. Um, and um, we get the twist at the end of the episode that we've already telegraphed uh, that... Uh, that, that, that Cooper had been his his airplane had gone down for a time, but it turns out during that interim he had been picked up by the USS Cyclops for a few days. But then the USS Cyclops was sunk, and he was the only one to survive that. So in X number of days, he was the only survivor. Yeah, and that's when Al drops the line that Oh, hey, by the way, the USS Cyclops disappeared in 1918, 26 years before Cooper was picked up. And when I was a kid, that confused me because I thought what they were trying to say is that Cooper was a ghost, too. Oh, uh, sure. Okay. No, but I get that, actually. That that makes a lot of sense that, because I, I could see why someone would think that, frankly. Yeah. Um, especially considering the fact that he does survive, you know, what, what we are presented with, anyway, two instances of, uh, you know, near death. Yeah. Um, and then considering that the second one was on a ship that should have been, that should have never been there. Sure. Uh, uh, it does kind of, yeah, give him a bit of a spectral quality, if yeah. you will. Now, the thing is, we, we see what maybe is the USS Cyclops earlier in the episode. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you have to wonder, is, uh, is what's going on in the Bermuda Triangle a little bit of time travel? I like that. I, you know, man, I hadn't even thought of that, but I like that. I think that is the best interpretation. You know, it disappears in 1918, yep. but then it pops up in, in 1956 for Sam and Al to see it out the window. And then it shows back up in, uh, was it 1944? And yeah. that's when it actually goes down. Yeah. It reminds me, man, I am all over the place with other TV shows tonight. I apologize. A, but it reminds me of Babylon 5. There mm-hmm. is a, um, uh, a masterfully done two-parter um, of Babylon 5 in the third season that has to do with um, the predecessor of Babylon 5, Babylon 4, naturally, um, moving <laughs> backwards and forwards in time, much mm-hmm. like what you're talking about. Um, and, 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 you know, the other thing is... I'm not saying there was any intent whatsoever on this um, when it comes to, you know, Paris Qualls or Anita Addison or Don Belisario, but the aircraft gets hit by lightning, Mm -hmm. which is 
something that you know Cooper says happened to him before. Yep. Um, but when you see that lightning, that blue and white crackling light, you can't help but think of the leap in and out effect. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, maybe maybe the Bermuda Triangle does have some sort of weird time traveling properties. And that works. That works for me. Right? Because, and, and I think I like that interpretation better than if it were literally a ghost ship. Yes. Because in a show that has thus far steered very clear of actually embracing any sort of paranormal activity, it would seem kind of out of character for the show to all of a sudden be like, oh no, that was a real ghost ship. Yeah. Well, I mean, they did have the ghost of, uh, uh, of what's her name in the Portrait for Troyan. I don't remember that episode. <laughs> <laughs> fair. fair fair enough uh, throwing some serious shade at uh, uh, at Troy so yes uh, so we so we get the twist and like I said this is the first of uh, several upcoming episodes where uh, we get like the supernatural twist at the end of the yeah. episode uh, so Sam leaps out uh, right before we hit record I, I posted on Facebook I asked uh uh, some people in our Facebook group and a couple of other uh, Quantum Leap Facebook groups, like, what are your favorite moments from the episode? And Diana Green, who we haven't heard from in a while. Oh, yay! Hi, uh, Diana. So she commented what her favorite moment from Ghost Ship was, and her comment was... Oh, God. The preview for Roberto, which is a much better episode. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> that. That's great. That's great. It is funny when I when I saw when I when I saw the leap out into the Roberto episode. It did make me, um, it brought it did take me back a little bit as I can remember watching that episode late night on USA. You know, back in the nineties or whatever. Um, I think that might actually be the last time I saw that episode. And um, I do actually have some fond memories of it. I don't know if I like it as much as Diana. But uh, I, I, it's going to be interesting because. Uh, you know, at the time it didn't register, but now, like I realize, like Roberto is such a commentary on Donahue and Geraldo oh, and, yeah. and those shows of the day that I didn't fully appreciate what it was doing then. Uh, I probably haven't watched this episode in close to fifteen twenty years. Yeah, same here. So it'll be interesting to to go and see that. Well, even the leap in is a is is basically a play on Geraldo getting punched in the face by like the, the KKK member. Like, there was an episode of Geraldo back in the eighties or whatever, where the, he had like people from the KKK on his show or something like that. And I don't, I, 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 I'm hopefully I'm not completely mixing all of this up, but, uh, I think what happened is that they, yeah, that there was ended up being some sort of shoving match discussion. Geraldo tried to like break things up and, and say, he, you know, say something, not exactly like what happens with Sam, but yeah, he gets, he got punched. And I think he, his nose was broken. Something like that. And he that, very yeah. famously, like he very famously, like wore like the you know the plaster and, right. and everything yeah. like on the show afterwards. Like, yeah, uh, kind of, m- yeah. M- uh, another uh, trash talk show host of the day, Morton Downey Jr. Do you remember him? Oh God, yeah, absolutely. Oh yeah, uh, th- this is going to be a fun one to dive into. Uh, fun well, one there to- are also the the other thing that'll be interesting too is that I mean, obviously the episode 
is is a commentary, uh, uh, I think, on that, uh, you, you know, that social aspect of, of sort of tabloid journalism, television, etc. But there's also an environmental aspect of it that will sure. be really interesting to discuss, I think. Yeah. Um, so, I, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, to talking a little bit about it. Yeah. And you brought up a very good point as well with the very end of, of Ghost Ship about kind of the twist at the end. And it is something that I think we're going to start to see more of. And I think we should probably square away a little time maybe to talk about the uh, the plight of the television program at this particular point in its history because we are nearing the end yes you know we, we we know that season five was a gamble in a lot of ways for a lot of people um, that there was a sort of a let's try to do everything we possibly can because a I don't know if we'll ever get the chance to do it again and B maybe one of these things will stick and we'll be able to, you know, get another year or so out of the show or something. Who knows? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that'll be interesting to kind of talk about as well, I think. That will be... Yes. Yes. I, I just want to start geeking out now. But let's just, yeah, let's just save it right. for hopefully next week because we're trying to get back into a better groove. A rhythm. Yeah. A rhythm, yeah. Um, you know, worth noting, we've got six episodes left of season four uh, before we hit season five, the final season. Um, so we're, we're kind of in the home stretch here. Um, we've got about 30, what, 30, 30 some yeah. odd left. Yeah. Two, uh, yeah, yeah. Something like that. Two episodes from now is it's a wonderful leap. And to me, yep. to me, it's a Christmas episode. It's a Christmas, like, even though it doesn't take place at Christmas, it's right. a Christmas episode. And I was just in here going like, did we cover that episode already? And I forgot about it. No, that's coming up in two episodes. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to that and we'll have, oh yeah, we'll have a lot to talk about in that. But anyway, I wonder why. Uh. Uh, <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Well, I uh, I think in closing that I stand by what I said earlier. Ghost Ship is is a good episode. It, it, there's absolutely nothing wrong with it at all. Uh, it you know it's certainly not going to stand as one of the greats. Um, but I think that it's a very good episode. There's some nice tension in it. Um, you know, I, I will throw this out there real quick. The MacGyver Project. Uh, dot blogspot.com um, one of the comments that uh, that he made about the episode was that the production values are great it felt very real um, and that you know just overall the, the the production values were great and I think that that's very true and I think it's one of the things that kind of lifts the episode uh, a bit and and I yeah I think it's it's it ends up being very good yeah I think uh, this is kind of a reverse where we were last week where you came into song for the soul not really appreciate not appreciating much about it uh, yeah. and had more appreciation for it by the end and I feel like I am yeah. in this boat no pun intended seriously no pun intended uh, I am in this boat this time with uh, with ghost ship so yeah it was a good yeah. episode to talk about but next week we will be back to talk about Roberto with an exclamation point oh yeah don't forget the exclamation point. All right. Take care, everybody. See you next time. Yep. We're going to leap out of here. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed what you've heard or have any questions or comments, don't be shy. Reach out to us online at fwwquantumleappod.com or Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Fates Wide Wheel. And remember to hit the subscribe button and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you may be listening. Until next time.
Not there, our hearts may turn. 